Should we start talking about that now, or yeah, should we wait? Yeah, we could. We both have read the book. Why don't you give a brief, uh, brief uh, summary? Yeah. So, um, well, the book is is basically it, it's uh, it's uh, Professor Ehrenberg's point of view of of what the what has happened over the last twenty five years or so that um, has driven the power of the right and <clears throat> looking at the the advances the right has made and also coming up with a coherent single sort of uh, framework in which you can you can uh, encapsulate a whole range of different activities that uh, that have gone on uh, from uh, the the, uh, the evangelical religious movements to um, to uh, the uh, the tax changes in the tax laws uh, and and how they have managed to get people to buy into this and and um, the consequences of the whole the whole program so it's uh, kind of a I think a very powerful uh, way of looking at the whole um, the whole thing and we'll talk about uh, specific details of how, of how the different components of this program um, and how it's been carried out is that your how would you was it <laughs> yeah it sounds like a great summary to me I just was reading it last night and finished reading it uh, this afternoon um, I think it's a very uh, it's a very interesting and insightful analysis of the way in which the the uh, the right has uh, has really quite systematically uh, dating back uh, to the Truman administration, used things like uh, militarism, uh, a number of a number of uh, topics actually to achieve its ends, which are always uh, invariably on uh, on really benefiting the rich and benefiting and re reinstituting or instituting a kind of oligarchic or plutocratic uh, uh, organization of our society. Uh, so he has a number of chapters in the book um, talking about the role of crisis, the role of militarism, authoritarianism or authority, racial fear, attacking welfare state, uh, defending inequality is a good thing, and uh, as all are kinds of themes that run through run through the book, which he describes in detail how um, how these ideas got started, how they were put into uh, how they were put into into action, uh, starting in the Cold War era, even the invention of the Cold War itself, and how they continue to be used uh, by what we today tend to refer to as the neocons, but the uh, the kooks who are running uh, who are running Shrub's government for him, who are busy uh, trying to uh, institute these uh, wild policies like elimination of Social Security, elimination of Medicare, shifting of uh, <coughs> shifting of burden, um, social burden, and risk on, onto. Um, Onto uh, the individual taxing income instead of wealth, and so on. So I think we have on the line now. Uh, I think we have uh, Professor John Ehrenberg. Are you, are you with us? I am. Oh, hi, John. Thank you very much for coming to the show. I'm I'm uh, Bob Harper. You recognize my voice, and uh, I think you spoke to Danny earlier today. Right. I did. So and as we're for me. as we're saying to our listeners, you've written this book called Servants of Wealth: The Rights Assault uh, on Economic Justice, and it touches on a number of themes that we've uh, discussed often uh, over the years and left out. And I wondered, uh, we were just doing our own little summary uh, from a reading. I read your book last night and today, and Danny read it, uh, and I wondered maybe you could start out for our listeners with a kind of a summary of your main message, and we, I would like to go into detail and some of the points uh, as, as, as we go along. Okay. Um, what, I, what I try to do in the book is account for uh, the last 25 years of the country's political history. And I think we have to be uh, very clear that when you have a political um, tendency that has been as powerful and as hegemonic as this one has been, um, you, you have to explain how it happened, and you have to pay attention to the real world. It, it's not enough to say 
that the right came to power because it's dishonest or because it lied to people or because it framed things better than its opponents did. Um, it, it doesn't do to say that it came to power because the, pop, the population is uh, short-sighted or racist or stupid or um, religious or materialistic. Um, and it didn't come to power just because it had a lot of money. The, the right came to power and has succeeded for a generation in doing substantial damage to the country's uh, uh, social networks because it was able to craft a series of arguments that acquired traction and that people listened to and that explained the world uh, in terms that they could understand. It didn't matter that at the end of the day these arguments were all uh, to be revealed as phony, but they did enable the right to construct an impressive set of institutions uh, and to win an impressive number of elections. And I think we have to start by, by taking these people seriously and not, and not writing them off. What I try to do is to say, um, look, when you look at the last 25 years, beginning with the end of the 1970s, at first blush, the right moves forward on a, on a wide variety of fronts, and it really does sweep the field, um, whether it's whether it's attacks on the 1960s, whether it's calls for a more muscular and militant foreign policy, whether it's uh, a thinly disguised appeal to, uh, to racism, or uh, attacks on the welfare state, or explicit apologies for inequality, those, those component elements of the right's assault um, kind of hide a, another agenda. And I'm not suggesting that this was done conspiratorially in the very beginning, because I frankly don't think these people had any clue at the beginning how successful they, they would turn out to be. But I think at the end of the day, when you look at, um, at, at the various elements of this, of this coalition, there's one particular theme that runs through everything they do and everything they say, and that is to take economic equality and to take economic redistribution off the table as a legitimate goal of policy and as a legitimate thing to be talking about in politics. And, uh, and that's been, whether you look at their discourse about race or about foreign policy or whatever, that's the common theme. So I think that, I mean, for my purposes, I think that the way, uh, the best way to understand how the right came to power um, is to understand its core, its core organizing project. And, and then everything else tends to make sense. So that's a, it's a, so it's a, this is a fascinating thesis, and I would like to go into it with you. Um, let me just mention for our listeners, we're talking to uh, John Ehrenberg, who's written a book called Servants of Wealth, the Rights, Assault, and Economic Justice. Um, and listeners, as usual, are welcome to phone in uh, if they'd like to uh, to talk with us uh, at 268-412-268-9728 or to send mail to, electronic mail to bob at leftout.info. So picking, picking up on uh, on that. Well, uh, maybe we can just. I mean, I guess I'm a little practical. Uh, you, you've been ta- you've been you, that that was a sweeping introduction, and um, I guess I'd like to just dig down a little bit into some specific things um, and some of the arguments that have been made and that somehow have been absorbed into um, into the common knowledge um, and the com- sort of commonly conventional accepted wisdom. conventional wisdom, commonly accepted um, as truths. Um, I mean, there's 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 general things about the market being the solution to everything and government always screwing things up. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that, there's that, there's that kind of So the kind identification of, of democracy with capitalist, uh, capitalist economic system, the identification of religious, uh, religious practice, religious freedom, and so on. I wonder if you can and, pick up on those themes. Sure. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a telling moment when Ronald Reagan was elected president, and um, at one of his first press conferences, a reporter asked him uh, what kind of president he wanted to be and what kind of country did he want to be leading, 
And, and Reagan uh, smiled that goofy smile of his and, and drawled. He said, well, the country I would like to lead is a country in which everybody can become rich. And that was pretty much the sum and substance of what he imagined um, his agenda to be. The, the, um, the deification of the market, the notion that the market is democratic, the market is the sphere of opportunity, the market is where a working class kid from Bensonhurst or a, a farmer from the middle of Pennsylvania can strike it rich, rich with a good idea and, and, a, and, a, and a measure of luck. Um, this, this whole notion that the market is the most efficient, the most fair, and the most just uh, way of allocating society's resources, that was a big piece of the way in which the right uh, rose to power. Now, this period of time is not the first time the right made those arguments. It's been making those arguments uh, you know, ever since the dawn of capitalism. The question you have, to, you have to begin to ask is, why is it that arguments that had formerly been marginalized and arguments to which people really paid very little attention, all of a sudden, in the late, se- the late 70s and early 80s, these ideas acquire some traction, yeah. and they become very, very popular. So um, the attack, you know, this, this anti-statism, you know, this, this notion that the state messes everything up, the state can do nothing right, the state is nothing but a bunch of pointy-headed intellectuals and bureaucrats sitting in Washington getting rich off of programs that they invent, that's part of the, of the assault on the welfare state and the deification of the market. Um, and that, too, is a – anti-statism goes way back in this country's history. And here, too, you've got to account for why is it at the end of the 1970s that all of a sudden attacks on the state's social welfare function become so popular and, and acquire such traction. So, you know, that's what I try to do, and I try to do it by looking at the arguments that are made uh, by specific thinkers and, and popular, um, popular writers. Uh, and, and to try to see just how how these arguments cohere together and how they appeal to people. So your your book begins in Chapter 1 uh, as going back to the Carter era, which I'm old enough to remember. And, uh, and, and, and the, and in the Carter era, there were a number of, uh, well, by now, uh, I would say it's a gross caricature of the Carter era is what people typically know from the typical, uh, uh, news sources. But, uh, in, in fact, uh, there were, uh, there were a number of, a number of, uh, sing- signal events during the Carter era, including the, uh, the second oil shock uh, in 1976 or seven, I think it was, yeah. and um, and the subsequent economic effects, as well as some matter, matters of international affairs like the ceding back of the Panama Canal to mm-hmm. uh, to Panama and so on. So I wondered you uh, commented on those. I wonder if you might summarize that, pick that up a little bit. Well, Jimmy Carter became the poster boy for the right, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and he became the uh, the ideal picture of the well-meaning, kind-hearted, naive, bumbling. Um, idealistic uh, liberal, um, and 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 it was a very effective picture that the right painted of him, and they were able to run against him and hold him up for mockery and for contempt for many many years, well into the middle of the 1980s. Carter had the the misfortune to be president at a time when a, a series of political and above all economic events uh, were bringing the post-war period of Keynesian organized political economy to a close. And, and what I try to say in the first chapter of the book is that the real signal event uh, that, that opens the door for many of these, right, these right-wing arguments is the, is the combination of stagnation and inflation that marks the end of Carter's presidency, and that they had to invent a new word for 
for, for this phenomenon because it hadn't been really understood before that, and, and the word was stagflation. Stagflation, the way it worked out, really made uh, Keynesian uh, macroeconomic policies irrelevant. And there was no, people just simply could not figure out how to escape from this trap of skyrocketing inflation on the one hand and high unemployment and a recession on the other. And that really is what opened the door to the right. That plus um, a series, like you say, a series of foreign policy uh, misadventures, um, not simply the, the, uh, the oil shocks and not simply the Panama Canal Treaty, but the occupation of the American embassy in, in, in Iran, and a whole slew of other things, um, made it possible for a set of right-wing, we now know them as neoconservatives, to begin making an argument that Carter was endangering the nation's security because he was naively um, seeking an end to the Cold War, and he was and he was uh, foolishly trying to reassert the country's foreign policy toward humanitarian issues, north-south issues, issues of poverty, and stuff like that. So, so Carter, um, Carter simply was, uh, he was just a victim of a series of prior decisions that all came together uh, in his presidency and confronted him, and through him, confronted post-war American liberalism with a set of problems that it simply couldn't solve. And that's what opened the door to the right. And so then the solution that was offered was uh, the magic of the market. The uh, solution that was offered, there were many solutions that were offered. One was the magic of the market. Mm-hmm. Another one was uh, an arms race and, and, a, and a ratcheting up of the Cold War with the Soviets. Uh, there were many solutions that the right trotted out. I don't think, uh, I really don't believe that, uh, that this is the result of a conspiracy, although there really was a series of meetings and there really were a series of institutions that were established during this time to aggressively push a distinctly conservative agenda. But, um, but when you look at Jerry Falwell stuff and you look at Irving Kristol and you look at the, uh, at, the neoconser- at the neoconservatives in matters of foreign policy, in many ways they didn't agree with each other at the end of the 1970s and early 80s. Um, but, but as this movement developed and as these coalitions begin to take shape, they all begin to focus their sights on post-war American liberalism and the party of the liberals, which was the Democratic Party. And that's what gives it. That's what gives it this coherence. So uh, some. Uh, go ahead, Danny. Well, so how did people come to accept? Um, oh gosh, I mean, there's some very specific things to talk about. I mean, like, well, somehow they they managed to accept the the notion that the estate tax uh, that the, the needs to be repealed, mm-hmm. um, even though statistically it only applies to some infinitesimal percentage of the richest people in the country. Yeah. Um, but somehow people have managed to, the right managed to, this is a very concrete low level compared to the broad sweeping statements you've been making, but um, somehow people have bought that somehow. I, I don't really understand it. And Well, actually, I have a theory myself. Maybe you can comment on this, but uh, just the notion that people have bought it because they think they're going to be rich someday. Just like yeah. just like people, they, they buy lottery tickets. I don't buy lottery tickets, but some people... They consistently buy millions of lottery tickets every day. Uh, and maybe that's the reason they want to uh, the, the cut the estate tax, even though the, the overall good would be tremendous for the country. Yeah, I think, I think that this kind of magical thinking does play a role. But there's a very good essay, which actually is available on, online for any of, your, any of your listeners who might be interested. It's by a guy named Larry Bartels, B-A-R-T-E-L-S, who teaches at Princeton. He's an economist at Princeton. And he wrote an article called Homer Gets a Tax Cut. You can download it from the net. It's uh, 25 or 30 pages long. It's a very, very good piece of social science. 
And Bartels asks just this question, why is it that those who would not benefit from a tax cut, actually, he goes further and asks, why is it that those who would actually be hurt uh, by a repeal of the inheritance tax, why do they support it? And the, and the answer he comes up with is similar to your answer, namely that only it's a bit more concrete. He says that there's, there's a tendency on the part of people, first of all, that they, they don't know the implications. They assume, they hear the word tax cut, and they assume that any tax cut, sooner or later, is going to help them, even if only a little bit. So when he, when he asked respondents who made much less money than would put them in jeopardy for, uh, for being taxed, they all said, well, I understand that the rich are going are to benefit from this. I understand that they're going to take home the lion's share of this. But maybe I'll take home a little bit myself. And if I, if I take, in other words, they were not bothered by inequality so much as they were bothered by, as long as they were enticed by something that they thought might help them, even if marginally. When it was pointed out to them that they wouldn't benefit at all from it. Because they'd have they to pay more taxes or they'd lose services, one or the other. That's right. Then they changed their tune. So, so there really are two, there are two kind of... Um, default answers here. The first is that in the absence of a countervailing story, Americans do tend to believe that tax cuts will help them. And the other is, the other uh, lesson here is that people have to speak up and make the arguments. Because when, when the tax cut issue was phrased and the Republicans began talking about it as if it was a death tax and stuff like that, there, was, there were really no strong voices from the Democratic Party who came forward and pointed out the implications of this. The strongest voices actually were Warren Buffett and Bill Gates' father. Right, that's came right. forward and started yelling about it. So the lesson is, it's not that people are stupid. It's that people don't understand the implications of, of, of many of these public policies, and they need to be educated, and that's why God invented politicians and ideologists, and they do their job. But, but, here, we, but here we have, I mean, uh, it seems like in the... Um Large corporations that control the the mass media outlets are constantly banging on this tax cuts. Everything is tax cuts. Everything revolves around the whole world uh, revolves around tax cuts. When I was in Eugene this past summer, uh, I saw a bumper sticker that said um, "Tax cuts e- or t- excuse me, taxes equal services." I thought that was great. Yeah. That's a perfect. That's a perfect thing because the 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 portrayal is constantly that well you know uh, Reagan was fond of this but it's it never goes away the the there's a constant uh, implication that uh, uh, gov- you know the government at best it's just a bunch of chiselers who are living off the government the welfare queens and so on mm-hmm. who are driving six Cadillacs or something like that and um, and it's just uh, incredible how they manage to uh, how they manage to to dupe people in my opinion to dupe people. Uh, on these yeah. issues. But it, as John pointed out, that, that, that there's sort of, that there's very weak, weak or non-existent countervailing arguments to these to these that are put forth, and at least... That's right. And, yeah. you need to, and you need to make them. Here's an example, um, uh, you know, with regard to this issue of tax cuts. Most Americans, when they're asked by public uh, op- opinion pollsters, when they're, when they're asked about things like universal health care or cleaning up the environment, um, they are willing to pay higher taxes if they could be convinced that those taxes would actually work for them. And they don't necessarily mean in a, in a private way. Americans are willing to spend tax, are willing to be uh, taxed higher for education. They're willing to be taxed higher for universal, universal health coverage. Even those Americans who have you know, uh, their own health coverage are willing to pay higher taxes if it will extend coverage to those who don't have it. So the, the, old, you know, the old tradition of solidarity is not dead in this country. It's just been it's been hammered for 25 years. Um, the the rights the three major element of the uh, elements of the rights 
um, economic agenda, and you're right about this, is tax cuts, but particular kinds of tax cuts, tax cuts on capital, tax cuts on wealth. That's the first. The second is privatization of formerly public functions. And the third, and perhaps the most important one, is actually deregulation. Uh, that may be the one that the, that the corporations really were after uh, more than anything else. But in any event, those are kind of the three legs on which the rights uh, 25 year uh, hegemony kind of sits. But even after, a, even after a generation of right-wing assault on all this, even now, like I say, Americans are willing to pay higher taxes. What they need to do is to be convinced that those higher taxes will work for them, that they will deliver public services in a fair and equitable fashion, that the economy won't be harmed, and that in some way it will uh, speak to the needs of others. If they can be convinced of that, I think this tax issue goes away. Mm-hmm. We're talking with uh, Professor John Ehrenberg from um, Long Island University, and um, you can give us a call at 412-268-9728 or email bob at leftout.info. So another another topic that's uh, or question raised in my mind is, what do people think about um, the obscene compensation of of the rich? Um, why is there an acceptance and a, a docile sort of um, I don't know what the right word is acceptance or it's almost as though it's a status quo uh, thing that that. Athletes are signing uh, contracts for you know hundred million dollars for five years or something, or CEOs are walking away from uh, failed CEOs. Failed CEOs are walking yeah. away with a two hundred million dollars, like in the case of the Home Depot guy. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Uh, I mean, people don't seem to that that to me it's an obscenity. Okay, it upsets me. It disturbs me. I, I think it's wrong, but I'm wondering what. Um, I guess I'm unique in that way, or, or something, or not, I'm not. I'm not normal. <laughs> no, actually, you're very normal. Uh, when people are asked about this, they don't like it. Uh, you know, the public opinion public opinion data is actually pretty interesting, and it does testify that that, and it's remarkable that even after 25 years of this stuff, people retain these kinds of core democratic uh, egalitarian principles, which is as American as uh, inequality is, and as worship of wealth is. The countries. The country's history is composed of several strands. It's not just, you know, a single story. And social equality and economic redistribution is as important a part of this country's history as its opposite. When people are asked about CEO compensation, they don't like it. When people are told about the, uh, the, 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 the level of, uh, of, of inequality in the country, they think it's a bad thing. When people are informed, for example, that the top 1% of the population walked away with 46% of all the stock market gains during the Clinton presidency, they open their mouths and they say, oh, that's terrible, that's wrong. So even, you know, even in the absence of coherent leadership from the Democrats, because the Democrat, you know, until recently with John Edwards, very few Democratic uh, politicians had the guts to be talking about this, even in the absence of the Democratic Party speaking up for social equality, those kinds of values still resonate among the population. Um, I, I'm always fighting uh, my colleagues and my, and my comrades on the left uh, who give up on, on the population and say that it's lost and the population is terminally religious and materialistic and apathetic and racist and stupid and ill-informed. It's not. It's astounding that... Uh, that these ideas remain as vital and remain as widely held as they are. Yeah. 
Well, one of the things, if you if you watch the, uh, if you ever pay attention to FAIR or the, the counterspin program they have, um, they're constantly, the, the, the media constantly ignores the polls. They actually don't like to present these kinds of polls which show uh, the, these sorts of beliefs that you've just been... been um, Support for these liberal uh, liberal programs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They t- tend to just suppress these things, so people don't even know that their fellow Americans are, you know, uh, on, you know on their side or, or on the liberal side. They, so, the failure in this country uh, has been a failure of the Democratic Party. I mean, that's really where you need to point the finger. Now, this is not to say that the right managed to fool everybody, because they really did win support for a variety of positions, and they then really did systematically sabotage them. So I don't want to, I don't want to imply by this that it's, it's only a matter of framing and the way arguments are put together, because it's not. The, the, the right really did appeal to people, and they, and they made very hard arguments about the nature of liberalism, and, they, and the claim was that liberalism has led the country um, into a ditch, and it's time to do things differently. So even as those arguments gained traction, and even as substantial portions of the electorate and of the population as a whole were won over to positions that formerly were just seen as marginalized and reactionary and preposterous, that's all true. And you have to, you know, you have to give them their due. But at the same time, and you know, it's a contradiction, at the same time as people were won over to hard positions on crime, for example, or uh, the end of a, an end to welfare or a more muscular foreign policy. They were won over to all those things. But when, when you ask them, do you, do you understand that these policies all mean shoveling an obscene amount of money at the already wealthy, they all say no. And they all say, no, I don't want that to happen. So that if you look, for example, at the way in which some of the racial discourse began to develop during the 1980s, um, you know, people who were grumbling about welfare, people who wanted stronger policing, people who wanted cities to be cleaned up, that's what they wanted. When you, when you point out to them, the right ran with that argument and used that argument in an assault on social welfare and economic equality, then they say, no, no, that's not what I meant. And indeed, it wasn't what they meant. So, you know, the way in which politicians use arguments is one thing, and the way in which the electorate understands those arguments is quite another. Well, it's also true. Uh, going back to the tax cuts, I mean, I think the it's it's pretty pretty clear uh, that the the especially in the '80s and early '90s that tax cuts were used as a code as part of the Southern strategy as a code for racism in the South, because the there was always this uh, this two two edged thing about cutting taxes to starve government and the implication that government was only just uh, you know being a, a tool for the lazy uh, the lazy uh, welfare cheats who were uh, chiseling off of the government. Now, another point I wanted to make that brought me up is that what's amazing to me is that you talk about a lack, a lack of leadership by the Democratic Party, and I would be the first to agree with you. And we've often been very uh, critical of the Democrats and their, uh, in their failure in exactly this dimension. And what, what always puzzled me, I mean, I think I know explanations, of course. I'm not totally naive. But, but from one point of view, uh, you, cause it, it's, so, it's so obvious and easy to make the counterargument. For example, it seems to me you could easily make it's a demonstrable argument that Bush, for all the time he's been in office, has not instituted, has not actually made a single tax cut. All he's done is to transfer the taxes forward into the future so that they can, the money and the benefits of that can be stolen now. 
Yeah, it's right. it's absolutely transparent. Yeah. And so what is un, what I what I'm often dumbfounded by is you know why is maybe I know the answer but I'll throw it out there anyway is you know why is no one capable of making such basic and obvious arguments? You know it, it is astounding when you see uh, the lack of response from the traditional party of government and the traditional party of the welfare state. You know it's astounding when you look at the last twenty five years. And they simply ran for cover. I don't think the Democrats had any idea of, of what hit them. I really don't. Hmm. The, the, the only response that you find that has any, uh, uh, that has any street cred is this uh, Clinton-esque policy of, of the third the way. The third way. I was going to ask you to comment on that. Yeah. I mean, that's the so, – so Clinton's policy and, – and this, by the way, this was not invented by Clinton. This actually came out of England. Yeah. And, and Tony it Blair. required a lot of credibility in Germany as well. You know, as the welfare state began to be attacked as unworkable, as favoring uh, the idle parasites at the expense of the productive majority. Good. Yeah, exactly. You know, as those arguments begin to be made, they're not just being made here, actually. It was Margaret Thatcher who begins to make Oh, for sure. And, and then, she used to say, there's no such thing as society. Yeah. I, I lived in the U.K. during that oh, did period. You? Yeah, in that period. That's, that's yeah. a great line. I know, I know, society. I know yeah. very well, yes. Yeah. Well, she starts making this, and the response from from the Labour Party in, uh, in England and the response from uh, Schroeder and the Social Democrats in Germany and of Clinton and, and, the, uh, and the centrists in the Democratic Party was the so-called third way. And, and their position was that, uh, that we've moved past the politics of, of, of production and distribution and exchange, and we're now in a post-economic, post-materialist uh, phase where lifestyle and identity and authenticity is what the Democrats ought to be organized around. And you, you give up uh, the economics. So that at just the time that the Republican Party was getting all excited about rewarding wealth and stimulating obscene historic levels of wealth transfer from the productive many to the unproductive few, I mean, that's really what was going on. At the very moment that the right begins to get turned on, the Democrats run for cover. And they take refuge in this in this notion that um, that progressive politics now means uh, the politics of consumption and of uh, personal authenticity. And of no wonder uh, working class uh, uh, white ethnics in cities. No wonder uh, many elements of the traditional New Deal coalition. Of course, they ran away. The Democrats were running away from them. Now, you know, perhaps the the wheel has turned a little bit. Maybe we're going to get some kind of reaffirmation of these core democratic policies. But the Democratic Party has been the party of government. The Democratic Party has been the party of the welfare state. And for 25 years, it lacked the courage and the vision and the leaders. Um, even now, you know, even now, I mean, uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the side benefits, if you want to call it that, of the of the uh, the Katrina uh, tragedy was people could see, you know, the Potterville that Bush would create for us, the Bushville, the vision of the no government services that was put that would that would be that would be the ideal utopian vision of 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 despicable uh, leeches like the bushes and it's a it's an it's an, an amazing thing and it finally woke people up i think to a degree that uh, really this small yeah. government you know has implications you know 
Very, that's but a, the Democrats haven't defended. You should very rarely. And that's was the, the other side. Just, and even in the wake of that, and this brings me to another point that yeah. I wanted to bring up, the Democrats seem to lack the courage or lack the vision or lack the ability or lack something to, to, to run with that to the extent that you would think should be possible. I mean, with the, with the situation being what it is, looking at polls, looking at various events, signal events that you could, you could point to, uh, people like Norman Podhoritz or Irving Crystal or these kind of characters would, uh, would be, you know, would be feasting uh, on this kind of on this yeah. kind of opportunity. I mean, the sort of things that went wrong in the Carter era aren't a fraction of what has been going wrong in the Bush era, to, to be sure. And it's astounding to me. So this sort of brings up an but issue. All the, all the, but, the, but you can imagine going on TV and being criticized by the by the pundits. Being, I mean, it would just be. Who are, who are all wealthy millionaires, as it turns yeah. out. But, yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, let's, let's uh, inform our listeners. We're talking to uh, John Ehrenberg, who's a political scientist from Long Island University. He's written a very interesting book called uh, Servants of Wealth, the Rights, Assault, and Economic Justice that we're, uh, we're discussing. And listeners are welcome to call in at 412-268-9728. I almost gave my office telephone number. Uh, 268-9728. You can send mail to Bob at left.info if, if you're not out shoveling snow. I don't know about you, John, but we're having a horrific uh, winter storm here today. I know. Uh, we're going to get a little piece The university is, in fact, closed. And, the university is uh, closed? I think so, yeah. Everyone, oh. People went home early. Everything was shut. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, but continuing. So the thing I wanted to bring up was also, you know, we've been talking about the, the, the directly economic issues of uh, private property and wealth and so on and low taxation and all this stuff, the demonization of government from Reagan. But the other thing that kind of started, or at least I don't know if I could say started, but certainly was part of the attack that arose out of the uh, Carter era was uh, all the militarism, and it started with the, uh, uh, what was it called, the Committee on the Present Danger or yep. something like that. Yep. And, in fact, it's the very same people, you know, Irving Crystal, William Crystal's father was one mm-hmm. of those figures, Norman Podhoritz. Uh, there's a number number of figures uh, who picked up in that. And I wonder if you could bring that uh, into the discussion, because that's sure. another uh, aspect of all of this, which this we are unfortunately actually... victimized by to, to, as we speak. Yeah, this, you know, this piece of it actually is very important, and it's interesting when the right starts yelling about the government uh, and getting the government off our backs and getting the government out of our pockets, um, it only is referring to, to certain things that the government does. It has no, the right has no problems, or most of the right anyway, except for the, the real libertarians among them. Most of the right has no problems with more prisons or with more cops. No, that's not the issue. The, is, the issue for them is, is the state's welfare function, and that's what they go after. So the way I think the way to understand the, the rise of the neocons and the development of a speci- specifically right-wing uh, discourse about foreign policy um, is, to, is to go back to the conditions which force the country to choose between guns and butter. Prior to uh, the end of the 1960s, the, the promise of New Deal liberalism, and it was really epitomized at Lyndon Johnson, is that you could have a militantly anti-communist foreign policy on the one hand, which is very expensive, and you could also have social reform at home. So Johnson could have the war in Vietnam, and he could have the war in poverty. And as long as the economic conditions made that possible, there was no apparent trade-off. You could, act, you could actually argue in certain ways, and and even the Democrats did, Cold War Democrats did, that a militant foreign policy that focused on arms races with the Soviets and was interventionist in matters of foreign policy was good for traditional Democratic Party constituencies. 
Then the Committee on the Present Danger arises in the midst of the Carter stagflation and the midst of the Vietnam syndrome and all this kind of stuff. And the Committee on the Present Danger starts making the argument, you can't have it both ways. You can't have the war on poverty and you can't have the war against communism. You've got to choose. And if you're going to choose, uh, domestic reform has to be trumped and has to yield to uh, the requirements of foreign policy. And, and then they set about making the argument. And they do. They make the argument very consistently, and that argument is followed through, and that argument is then picked up by the Project for a New American Century and other elements of the contemporary neoconservative uh, uh, school of foreign policy thinkers. So, and now that's all come aground in, in Iraq, but the argument really was that, if you ha that since the country can no longer have it both ways, um, foreign policy has to trump everything else. And, and that was the way in which the, uh, the critique of Carter's alleged weakness and his alleged naivete in matters of foreign policy began to feed the right wing's long-time mm -hmm. uh, desire to reward wealth and privilege. And, and Crystal John. made it clear. Irving Crystal absolutely made this clear in 1976 when he wrote this great book called Two Cheers for Capitalism, which lays out uh, the neoconservative mm -hmm. agenda and links so. uh, an attack on on the welfare state and an attack on the New Deal, and specifically an attack on the Great Society, with a militantly uh, anti-communist foreign policy. We have a question. We have a caller on the line. Uh, Joe, are you there? Oh, unfortunately, he's hung up. We uh, we waited. We <clears throat> waited for you to finish, but I think Joe got uh, got, got impatient. impatient. Oh well, That's uh, nothing like a long-winded professor. Uh, so, yeah, I know. I know the problem. I'm the same same way myself. Uh, so yeah, so picking that up, I mean, uh, maybe uh, some of our listeners, certainly our younger listeners, might not realize the continuity of the people involved, really, since the uh, since the uh, Carter era, starting as I mentioned earlier with Irving Crystal, as you just mentioned now, and then William Crystal and the Project for New American Century, and these themes that are that have been driving uh, quite explicitly the current uh, uh, Bush administration's uh, foreign policy, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Dick Cheney and uh, Donald Rumsfeld, who were two members of the Project for New American Century, uh, they came into prominence with Gerald Ford. You know, all this talk about Gerald Ford, the nice guy who cooked his own breakfast. <laughs> Gerald Ford's big legacy to American politics is Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. So, and and, and they, they carry this whole argument forward. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we'll probably wrap up this segment of our program so mm -hmm. we can get to our next guest. Um, thank you very much, uh, Professor John Ehrenberg, for uh, sharing, talking about your book, Servant, Servants of Wealth, which is a new book, a fascinating book about, well, we've been talking about it, and uh, we recommend the book. So um, maybe someday we'll have you back uh, to talk about other issues. Uh, uh, there's a lot of other political science issues that I'm interested in uh, getting an opinion on, and you sound like a very good person to uh, to uh, expound on them. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thanks thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, thank care. you for being on Left Out. Sure. Okay, okay, we'll take, take a we'll take a brief break, and then we'll come back. We have a guest, Robert Firth, on the line. We'll come back in a few minutes' time. Thanks.
blood Drink a vampire's blood Pack your suitcase, leave it behind Don't want to talk to a priest Don't want to sell my soul to the beast Just want to skip to the feast Make me blind Come down, come down Silver, you'll never give me gold. I can't take that color anymore, no matter what you've been told. It's only gonna And turn. Cupid's got you crying out loud. He laughed every time you fell. He led you to the gates of hell. But he left you with a story to tell. Raise yourself. Come down, come down for your silver. So uh, we're back. Welcome back to Left Out, uh, reality-based independent radio on WRCT. Uh, we are that we, we were just listening to uh, the Working Poor uh, record called uh, "Come Down for Your Silver." Uh, so we have another guest, uh, Dan. Yes, on the line we have Robert Firth. Robert, are you there? I'm here. Robert is the president and founding a founder of Informing Design Inc. Um, and uh, works on maps and traffic uh, maps and uh, traffic sign systems, I believe. And um, he told me today that he and his co-workers are map experts and transit, transit aficionados. And uh, Robert has written a uh, has a proposal uh, for how the uh, Pittsburgh transit system can restructure the the bus lines uh, in a way that makes more sense. Uh, maybe uh, he's actually written an op-ed article in the uh, Post Gazette about the um, the new idea, and um, it's modeled after a Brazilian city. Uh, and I have a link to the, the op-ed on our webpage, but maybe, um, Robert, you could go ahead and give us a, a brief summary of the um, of the proposal. I'd be happy to. Um, uh, I was listening to your earlier listener, and I'd be happy to increase my taxes to double our support for transit. Let me make that clear. <laughs> but uh, I called my piece the long, squiggly line that's killing our transit system and news of a Brazilian cure. Uh, our firm did the most recent version of the system map, of the Port Authority, and the hardest problem we had was making any sense of it. It was such a pile of spaghetti, 
And um, what we've discovered is that there are so many corridors that share routes in a way that's wasteful. Um, I think the Port Authority grew its system almost one route at a time, one stop at a time, and never stopped to step back and say, well, how can we rationalize all this service into a more efficient approach? Um, there's a lot of uh, cities out there that have discovered that you could actually, in a sense, create a subway system out of buses. And that would be a beautiful thing for Pittsburgh. Right now, in-city service is the stepchild of the suburbs. It's the stepchild of these long, squiggly lines making their way in from, like, the North Hills or Monroeville or wherever. And the result is, for example, CMU students get uh, to have 61 series buses pass them by because they're too full on their way to Squirrel Hill. Um, in a rational, efficient system, I say let's make the in-city service a very simple subway-like routing pattern that's made out of buses. And those buses on these core routes would go as fast as a car, stopping infrequently, and maybe even arriving at stations where they would link with feeder buses that provide the uh, service into the suburbs, uh, local neighborhood service. And um, the result of that could actually be a system that covers all the neighborhoods that even with transferring gives you faster through times, all within the proposed uh, drastic cuts that are coming this June. Sounds too good to be true. Well, you know, <laughs> L.A., uh, in 1995, I wrote, started writing letters to people in the city about the news of the transit insights in Curitiba, Brazil, and got nowhere. At the exact same time, an architect in L.A., did the same thing with the mayor of L.A. and the L.A. transit system. The difference is L.A. went ballistic. They thought it was brilliant, these ideas. And the L.A. transit system has experienced an incredible renaissance. They just started a core route through the San Fernando Valley, their orange line, and its first year of service, I think they've gotten double the expected ridership. And that's in L.A. where no one, no one, takes no one thinks of taking a bus. So... Uh, one of the one of the advantages, I believe, of, of, of the proposal is simplicity, is that people can understand how the system works. Is that part of the, the appeal of it? Yeah. In fact, uh, Larry Berger, who uh, I guess uh, has the Saturday Light Brigade program on your radio station, he wrote a letter saying that he's had guests and, and, and lots of people he's met in Pittsburgh who just find our system bewildering. Well, we were studying it for a year, and we were bewildered, and we're supposedly experts. Imagine if there were simply Route 1 in the Oakland direction, Route 2 in the south direction, you know, Route 3 in the north direction. Or you could even have our orange line going to Oakland, our green line going to uh, the south side and the south hills. Um, we actually envision a system where there would be what, what experts call circumferential routes. So you have the radial routes out from Oakland and downtown, but then you have circumferential routes, like from Squirrel Hill to Oakland to Shadyside to Bloomfield to Lawrenceville, hooking up with buses coming out of the Strip District in downtown, for example. Ah, those kind of routes are a nightmare at the moment. Yeah, no, oh, uh, yeah. there's somebody who lives in the East End we know who has to commute to the Strip District, and to do it by bus is insane. She just yeah. can't do it. 
So you were telling me you were telling me on the phone earlier that uh, I said, "What makes the system so inefficient? Like, how, how do you know it's so inefficient?" And you gave me an example. Yes. Well, our office is near the corner of Smithfield and the Boulevard of the Allies downtown, mm-hmm. and that's a very interesting location. It's the last bus stop in downtown for the '67 series buses. Now, I sometimes take the 67H to Squirrel Hill, and it's usually full at rush hours. But the 67A, the 67C, the 67E, the 67J, and I think I'm missing a couple. If you watch those go by, you'll stand there over an hour's period and see eight or nine buses go by, each with three or four people in them. And the next stop for those buses is in Oakland, like two and a half, three miles away. There is no reason to have ten buses when one or two could take the exact same load. So why does that happen, do you think? Well, I gave as an example. And I have, by the way, let me say that I have friends at the Port Authority and the staff there, and they're serious and they're well-intentioned. But I think they just have this habit of work in a kind of bureaucratic sense. If you look at the timetable, for the Port Authority. Every one is a unique folded layout. Almost every other system in the country has a standardized layout for timetables because it's easy to update, efficient to print, efficient to design. The Port Authority takes each timetable as it comes, every schedule change as it comes, and reinvents that timetable every time. It's just you don't have to think. You just do the thing you've always done. And I believe the way they design and produce timetables is the way they've designed and produced bus routes. So uh, what would be the uh, the layout that you're proposing? Well, one of your proposals, obviously you can fine-tune it and so on, but uh, what would you advocate? Like what would this, this, the inner subway system component, what what would that comprise of? What, what, what routes would that have in it? Well, uh, take all of the routes between the rivers, for example, between the Allegheny and the Mon, so the, the core of, of the city of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. I would picture kind of a, a pincer movement where you'd have an express bus going on the busway, so that's the Allegheny side core route. You'd have an express bus on the Mon side, maybe that's 2nd Avenue, maybe it's Boulevard of the Allies, Maybe the bus can decide which is the best route, depending on whether it's snowing or not, because its next stop is three or four miles from downtown. And then there'd be a central route that terminates in Oakland. I mean, imagine we've never had an express bus between downtown and Oakland, and that's the busiest, uh, most traveled corridor in the entire system. Um, Now imagine, then, anyone in the East End could either take a route towards Oakland, there'd be circulator routes in the East End, like Regent Square, Squirrel Hill, Oakland, um, head towards Oakland, and you're in Oakland. But let's say you want to go downtown, there'd be circulator routes going north-south that would take you, if you're closer to the East Busway version, to the busway to go into downtown. Or if you just want to travel around in the East End, You'd go to Squirrel Hill and switch to a bus that takes you to Shadyside, Bloomfield, Lawrenceville. And you'd make the pattern absolutely simple. You could have the orange routes heading to Oakland, the gold routes heading north-south between, like, Lawrenceville and maybe ending up in the waterfront, the south side. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, we're talking to Robert Firth, who's talking, and we're talking about the, uh, the Allegheny Transit bus system. Um, and, and there's want, a nice uh, link to a nice cartoon uh, summary of his proposal. Right, uh, on it, the right. Page. You can give us a call at four one two two six eight nine seven two eight. We just have a few more minutes left in the program. So you guys, uh, Robert, have done the math, and you think you can get a 25% savings and uh, without a significant service loss, or what is your calculation? Uh, we did the math on this um, 12 years ago, and mm-hmm. at that time, key people in the Port Authority agreed that in an area where we replaced existing service with this kind of core route plus feeder circulators, that we might save up to 33% in operational costs, eliminate duplication, modulate circulators based on demand. Maybe they're once an hour in a neighborhood, not every 20 minutes. But now they have to be every 20 minutes because they have to feed all the way into the city. Uh, The other thing that happens, you don't have all these buses coming into downtown to turn around. You don't need 150 buses in downtown. Give me two bus routes in downtown that are circulating, keep the 150 out, and they don't spend their 10 or 15 or 20 minutes turning around in downtown. That's a lot of expensive operational time. So what can our listeners do who might be interested in supporting your uh, your proposal? What uh, what should people do? Well, I think uh, if they could uh, email Dan Honorado or email their state legislator, um, we have some interest by uh, House members in pursuing this. And we may actually get some, um, uh, they may actually start getting some publicity about uh, pushing this kind of idea. I personally think we need an independent body or independent commission to reorganize our transit system because it just, it needs help. So if they write their legislators or write on Arado, that would be a great help. Yeah. Well, I just want to make one other last comment, something I've thought about um, with the way things run here, I mean, I <clears throat> well, a lot of cities have changed the um, the uh, the roads that were laid out, you know, fifty, hundred years ago, in a grid, and they've changed them to one-way streets or dead ends or forced corners and things like that in, in various na- in neighborhoods that are residential. Uh, that's happened in St. Louis, Missouri. It's happened in Oakland, California, and a lot of other cities around the country. Whereas in Pittsburgh, that that idea sort of hasn't been taken up, as far as I know. Um, is this the kind of thing you ever th- you think about in your job or in your, in your or, hobby? Well, I guess I didn't follow you. I mean, is this are you think, talking of traffic calming things or just? I'm just trying. I'm trying to get the through traffic out of the residential neighborhoods. You know, the, the new idea is is to do traffic calming, and I think that's that's a related uh, a related idea that um, um, you uh, uh, you have your uh, arteries where you focus your you know your Forbes and your Fifth and you focus your traffic. And um, you find ways to calm or restrict yeah, traffic. Yeah, exactly. That, I, as places. far as I know, that idea has not been applied in, in Pittsburgh. No, uh, you know, uh, we we need to wind up the show. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're out of Don't time. Don't get me going, Robert Firth. Uh, thank you very much for thank being you. on our program. Good luck with your work on Pat. Appreciate that. Uh, that finishes uh, today's program on Left Out. Thank you to producer Hank for producing today's program, and we plan to be back as ever in two weeks' time. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>